0: Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine for February 22nd, 2024. My name is Annie Lamia, your host for this week. And this week, I'm joined here today with Andrea Lopez-Lang, an associate professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at University of Albany. She is here in residence at UW-Madison, teaching classes in atmospheric and environmental sciences. And she happens to be one of my professors this semester here at UW-Madison. This week, we will get the chance to deep dive into polar vortexes, but... You know, before we get into that, Professor, tell me about yourself. Where did you do your studies and what made you interested in pursuing a field in weather extremities?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I grew up in the D.C. area, and I had no idea what I wanted to do as a senior thinking about college. I came to UW, uh, here at UW-Madison. I was on the track team. I was an undecided major, and I took AOS 100 which is intro to weather and climate. And it was in that class that I decided, you know what, this is it. This is what I want to do. I always had an interest in weather and climate. Um, My family is in farming. So weather was always a topic of conversation, whether we were going to get rains or too much rain or, you know, it was too hot. It was always a topic of conversation. And so when I took this class, it really clicked for me. So after that, I decided to change my major to atmospheric and oceanic sciences And I did three degrees here at UW-Madison. I did my, I got my undergrad, bachelor's degree, master's, and PhD here in Madison.
0: All for the atmospheric sciences, I'm assuming? Yes,
1: all for atmospheric and oceanic sciences.
0: What made you so interested in in weather? Besides that, you know, did you have a a, a time in your life where you're like, you know what, this is like an event maybe that you decide that this is what you want to do, this is what you want to pursue?
1: Yeah, so that's That's also an interesting question. Most people who get into atmospheric science have some sort of, uh, you know, like epiphany that they saw a tornado or something big happen in their childhood. For me, it was moving from Texas, where it was mostly topics about when we're getting rain and when we're getting, uh, you know, when it was going to be dry and hot, to moving to the D.C. area. And that year we moved. I won't tell you what year it was. It was a long time ago. Um, that year we moved. We had a really big snowstorm, um, and it was the first time I ever saw snow coming from Texas. And so we had this. It was probably about twelve inches of snow in one snowstorm. And as a you know five year old, that was about half my height. So I was just amazed by snow. And pretty much that's how uh, I got into thinking about winter weather. So now as a faculty member. I run a research group, and my research group thinks about a lot about winter weather, how we can better predict winter weather with longer lead times, how we can have uh, discussions with people who need to know winter weather information, whether that be energy companies or agriculture sectors or commodity groups. Uh, we think about winter weather at timescales of a few days to a few weeks.
0: Awesome. Uh, you mentioned this uh, this research group, and you also mentioned, you know, all these degrees that you had at Madison. After your time here, what kind of roles have you picked up, like, along your journey? Do you always stay in Madison after graduating?
1: No. So right after graduation, I moved to Albany, New York. Um, I did a postdoc there where I was thinking about how tropical cyclones—so that's not winter weather—but um, how typhoons in the West Pacific Ocean have impacts that we feel here in North america Through these, what we call teleconnections. So basically, something happens in the Pacific, there's some downstream impacts for us over North America. And when we think about that, especially in the fall season, um, that's when their typhoon season is really acting up. That's when we really feel the impacts of these typhoons that happen in the West Pacific over North America that can give us things like early season cold air outbreaks or other high impact weather. So that's what I did right after graduation. And then I stayed in Albany as I became a faculty member. But while I was a faculty member, I also did consulting. So one of the things that I did in my consulting was I worked with um, basically a data analytics company. And we were thinking about how we can use weather information to inform uh, energy sector companies for things like when will they have higher generation in wind energy, especially for groups in Europe, or when will... Uh, it get really cold when we're going to have a high demand in the winter season for increased energy demand. So we were making predictions like that. And so I worked with them to really communicate needs or the the potential impacts of high impact winter weather on the energy sector. So that's, yeah, that really, that experience, I did that for about five years while also being a faculty member. Um, It really informed some of the research that I do now.
0: And, you know, doing a little bit of my background research on you, um, I know you've had affiliations with uh, like NOAA, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as well as other organizations. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, the, you know, as a faculty member, I support a research group and our research group gets funding. Uh, my people in my research group have had funding from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NSF, um, NASA, and the Office of Naval Research. So we're a very diverse group. We do a lot of different types of research. But for NOAA, one of the first projects that I did with uh, NOAA was for subseasonal to seasonal prediction, and so that's really thinking about how we can make better forecasts from two weeks to two months in that time frame. And so basically, what that entails is using these slowly evolving phenomena in the atmosphere, and these are things that you've probably heard of but don't really know that much about. Um, things like El Niño. This was an El Niño winter, so how does that change what we can expect for this? this winter season. There's other oscillations in the atmosphere that we can use to sort of communicate how the extremes and weather might shift in one direction or another. And so this is uh, one of the projects that we were doing, uh, was part of this, was part of NOAA's subseasonal to seasonal prediction task force. And so I was one of the co-leads for this task force. And there was about 50 scientists from across the country that were all thinking about this time scale, two weeks to two months, and this is really one of those places where we have our traditional weather forecasts, where you make forecasts on the timescales of a few days. That's what you hear about when you watch your local news and you, you turn on the news and the meteorologist is there telling you what the weather is. We also have climate outlooks, which are telling you, you know, a few years from now, this is what to expect. But this timescale in the middle is sort of this, this blank area where a lot of research is happening and we're really trying to push it forward to help decision makers Make better decisions because that's where businesses are really impacted. Is trying to make decisions, um, you know, if I'm a farmer, I want to know is it going to be time to plant my crops, you know, in this warm spell in March, or should I wait because we're going to have this cold air outbreak later on? And so that's really what we're trying to inform those types of decisions in that two-week to two-month timeframe.
0: And these uh, these predictions on these decisions that. Um, that you're trying to communicate out to the community. Um, I'm assuming they've gotten immensely better since, you know, years ago. Do you know anything about that? I know you worked on, you know, accurate model predictions for weather. And how much better has it gotten and what more can it tell us?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. So, of course, if you're in the the world of making predictions for weather, you have to keep, keep track of your skill. And so right now in the weather community, um, making a prediction seven days out is as good as making a five-day prediction was um, about 15 years ago, which is as good as a three-day prediction was in about 1990. So we're getting better. Every, every uh, year is a little bit better, so that's really good. Um, but on these subseasonal timescales, you know, everybody knows that if you look at a forecast 46 days from now, the average forecast is going to be garbage. It's not going to be good. <laughs> but there are these windows of opportunity, And so knowing when you're in a window of opportunity, when you can have this increased skill, is really what we're trying to communicate. We know that forecast, just a raw forecast, any given day at 46 days out is not going to be good. But if you know that you happen to be in one of these windows of opportunity of increased skill, you can make a more informed decision during these windows. Um, And so that's really what we're trying to aim for is Configuring decision making around these windows of opportunity when you have the opportunity to be informed about what might happen a few weeks from now.
0: You tell anyone the word meteorology; I'm sure the first first thing that pops in their head is, "Oh yeah, like the guy on my TV that lies to me about the weather all the time." Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> you know, the uh, it must be nice to be wrong half the time and still get paid for it. You know, I don't know what to say to those people, but it, it's interesting because making a prediction is really a probabilistic. It's like it's like playing a hand of poker. You have to know the probabilities and when to, you know, make that decision to put some chips in or when to fold. So really, that's what we're doing when we're thinking about weather is trying to be really informed about the statistics um, for making these types of decisions.
0: And you're talking a lot about science communication and uh, prediction models and whatnot. Do you think, uh, will it continue to progress and grow in the future or Are we ever going to hit like some sort of, you know, stopping point, some sort of wall at all? Or is it going to keep progressing?
1: It's like you were at the conference I was at a few weeks ago. That was a huge topic of conversation. So, um, you know, one of the things you were asking is how much better our predictions are than they were a few years ago. And by understanding the physics of the atmosphere, we've been able to add resolution and add parts of our models that didn't used to be there to really resolve these new emerging areas where we know prediction skill is coming from. So having supercomputers was a big part of making weather forecasts for the last two decades or so. And for going into the 90s and into the 2000s, if you looked at what the largest supercomputers in the world were used for, a lot of them were used for making weather forecasts. Now um, that computing has become a lot more accessible, There's still a lot of resources and computing power used to make weather forecasts, but we also now have lots of data. Petabytes and petabytes of data are created every day. And of course, as soon as somebody thinks data, people start thinking, oh, data analytics, AI. And so now we're getting into this uh, new era of weather forecasting where AI is being used to make weather forecasts. And so companies like IBM and Microsoft and Google all have AI-based weather models And now we're working on sort of doing this blend where it's a physics-based AI model or a physics-informed AI model. So it's still kind of following the rules of physics, which you need to do for the atmosphere, but now extending our ability to make certain parts of a weather forecast more accurate.
0: So it's a little more complicated than a uh, yes or no question. uh...
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, people are like, oh, it must be nice to be wrong half the time you have to know physics. And apparently now you also need to know artificial intelligence and machine learning. So we're definitely getting into a new era. And I I think it's really exciting uh, to see where it's going. I think we can help people a lot to make better decisions about weather and climate.
0: While we're on the topic of machine learning, AI, whatever, Um, I know it's a huge topic right now. It's been a huge topic for a few years. What's kind of like the job outlook for You know, students that want to get into weather, atmospheric sciences, uh, is AI going to be a benefactor or is it going to hurt their opportunities to get jobs?
1: No, that is also a really interesting question because, you know, with AI, the question is, do you need a human forecaster? And if you've looked at output from some weather AI models, right now, we still need the human to help us interpret a forecast. You can, I can present you with as much forecast data as you want, But being able to actually make the decision associated with that forecast is something that a human is still better at right now. Whether or not AI eventually fills that gap, that's still to be determined. But I do think that uh, there's a lot of parts of this that still require a person. And so if you're an atmospheric science student and you're thinking about, okay, where can I get a job really one of the skill sets that's most needed in my conversations with employers across the board from any sector is that you need to be able to communicate the science in an understandable way to somebody who actually is using the science. So to be able to communicate the science, you really have to know the science. Um, So I think that knowing weather and climate really from the inside out and being able to own it when you communicate it is going to be a skill set that's always going to be needed Even in the face of, you know, changing technology, if you can communicate that knowledge to somebody who is looking for it or tell them why they need it, that's going to be a skill set that's always going to be useful.
0: And uh, I just read an article, forgive me, I forgot the name, but uh, I read that now more than ever, you know, these weathermen that you see on TV have degrees in atmospheric and oceanic science rather than 50, 60 years ago. I mean, it's just you got up there and you talked and you didn't have have all that knowledge that they do now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. If you want to be a uh, certified meteorologist, broadcast meteorologist, you do need that atmospheric science degree. There's actually a test that you take to become a certified broadcast meteorologist. To my knowledge, most of the ones here in the Madison area have that or are working towards it if they're relatively new. Um, But yes, that is uh, generally a requirement is that most meteorologists that work at news stations happen to also be like the station scientist so, if there's a news story that happens to be about science that maybe isn't about weather or climate, they also are the scientists, so they cover that that news too.
0: You stepping away a little bit from these weatherman jobs, you know, the you think like I said before, you think meteorology, weather, you think oh, the weatherman on TV. What kind of there's a lot of opportunities in this field. Uh, as someone who's studying atmospheric and oceanic sciences, what's something you kind of can give out like advice for? I know there's a lot of fields. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how broad this field could really be? Yeah.
1: So you're right. I think most people, and still now when I tell people that I study um, meteorology or atmospheric science, they think that I'm training people to go on TV. And that is far from the truth. You know, you can do everything from the traditional forecasting job. Uh, The National Weather Service for the longest time was the largest employer of meteorologists doing forecast jobs across the country at their various local offices. Um, The local office here in our area is the Milwaukee-Sullivan office, which is about, it's not quite in Milwaukee, it's in Sullivan, Wisconsin, which is about an hour east of here uh, in Madison. But So that was traditionally the jobs that were available. But now, meteorologists are employed by airlines, Delta, Southwest, they all have meteorologists that help aviation uh, in the aviation sector. There's marine meteorologists that help with um, large shipping companies across you know, help with marine routing, that sort of thing. There's energy meteorologists that help forecast load for wind energy, but also solar. Um, They also forecast energy demand and uh, can help plan for spikes in energy across uh, uh, various grids. So energy meteorology is also a big, big energy, uh, big thing that people go into. There's meteorologists that work in the energy sector, but more for a uh, utility side of things that help plan for outages and help utility companies be prepared when there's down lines and that sort of thing so that they can be ready to do the repairs or mitigate against the worst of repairs. So utility and energy are two big areas. Risk and thinking about how a lot of insurance and reinsurance companies, employ meteorologists to think about risk and planning for risk. So as we have marched forward from 1980 to now, the number of billion-dollar weather and climate disasters that have happened in the U.S. has increased every, nearly every decade. Actually, not nearly. It has increased every decade. And in the last five years, there's been more billion-dollar disasters than any of the other five years um, since 1980. So you know, the impacts of weather and climate events are huge and impact nearly every sector of the economy. Agriculture, energy, commodities, uh, utilities, supply chain is really impacted by weather and climate. And so all of these sectors employ meteorologists. The job, if it's, you know, if you're looking on Indeed or something like that, and you're looking for this job, it's not going to say meteorologists, it's going to say something like data analysts, but in the small text, it will say we're looking for somebody to analyze how weather impacts the supply chain of, you know, uh I have a good story about how a beer company, I won't say which one, contracted with a bunch of meteorologists to do the best routing for beer transport from their, their hub to the various local distribution centers across the country. And because they worked with meteorologists, they were able to save millions of dollars just knowing whether or not they needed to use a refrigerated truck or not. So wow. working with meteorologists helped them in, uh, in that context. So,
0: yeah. A lot of jobs, lot of a lot of opportunities. A lot of opportunities.
1: And I think now more than ever, people are realizing that, uh, especially thinking about how things are changing, how climate might impact your assets in the long term, um, there's a lot of companies looking for people who know how to interpret weather and climate information.
0: Like like we heard, thank you, Professor, for uh, all that information. But uh, let's get a little bit into what you like doing. What's your job? I know you're uh, really interested in polar vortexes and have done some papers yes. on them, right?
1: Yeah. So, one of the things that I study in thinking about making these predictions, in, especially in wintertime on these timescales of two to two weeks to two months, is how things that happen in the stratosphere, which nobody thinks about weather in the stratosphere, but how things that happen in the stratosphere can actually impact us here living at the surface of the Earth. So if you think about the stratosphere, it's about when the sun sets on the North Pole, that polar stratosphere gets really cold. And when it gets really cold, all of a sudden, because of dynamics in the atmosphere, that cold air is surrounded by a jet stream that is in the stratosphere. And so it's together, that jet that encircles the coldest air over the polar stratosphere that is the polar vortex. So... You might hear, oh, the polar vortex is, like, coming and it's going to get really cold. That's not really the polar vortex. Uh, The polar vortex itself is really a stratospheric phenomena. But when it's this huge thing that encircles the entire North Pole, if it wobbles, and it can wobble for a number of different reasons, but if it wobbles, generally um, the cold air follows it at the surface, so if a wobble happens to move towards North America, then we're going to experience cold. If a wobble happens to move towards Europe, then Europe will experience cold. And so my research is really trying to understand via basically fluid dynamics reasoning how we can understand and determine where this polar vortex will wobble to. And once it wobbles, it usually has um, implications on these timescales of two weeks to four weeks to six weeks. So that's my, that's my research.
0: Reading a polar vortex sounds uh, pretty difficult to someone who doesn't have any information or no knowledge prior to this interview. Uh, How how are you reading these polar vortexes? Is there something that kind of tips them off? Is there something that gives you some insight?
1: Yeah. So we're looking for the wobbles. So our group both studies what happens after it's sort of pushed in one direction or another, but also the sources of the wobble to begin with. And usually, There's a whole bunch of events that happen, but they usually happen across the whole northern hemisphere. And so most of these start in the tropics, interestingly enough. And because if you think about, if you hold a rope, like a jump rope, and you hold it across a driveway and sort of you raise your arm and then bring it down really fast, you'll see a wave travel down the rope. That's exactly what's happening in the atmosphere. Those waves are generated by all this Thunderstorm activity in the tropics, that creates sort of the pull your arm up and down really fast. And then the wave travels down the rope. And when that happens, you can push, as that wave is traveling, it sort of pushes the vortex, the polar vortex, off of its normal location. And just like a top spinning on your table, it all of a sudden gets really wobbly and takes some time to get back to where it wanted to be. And so that's really what we're trying to understand is what is causing that big push off the pole for the polar vortex, and then trying to understand how it will evolve after that. And so there's a, a bunch of diagnostics that we can do to really figure this out. But once we have this polar vortex disruption in a forecast, generally we can make a better forecast.
0: And besides telling uh, us in the northern hemisphere here that it'll be cold, can it lead to any extreme weather like we were talking about? Can it lead to... Anything that should be communicated to us at all?
1: Yeah. So um, when the polar vortex does wobble and it leads to, you know, cold in places we don't really experience cold, usually during the winter, because we have that, we get what we call in in the the weather science world, we have high amplitude flow. That's what it's called. But really what that means is just stormier conditions than normal. And so when we get these, these wobbles in the polar vortex, we can have changes in the storm track locations. And they're they're usually changes that are consistent from year to year. So every time the polar vortex wobbles, then we can have a change in the storm track. And it turns out that the most variability in the polar vortex impacts Europe more than it does North America. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of Europeans that are really focused on what's going on in the polar vortex. But it can lead to complete changes in the distribution of precipitation It can lead to Spain having drought-like conditions during the winter season, but sort of northern Europe having more precipitation. Um, And it can also impact the generation of wind. Um, A lot of Europe gets its energy from wind energy. And so it can change where you're going to have your peaks in generation versus lulls in generation. So, yeah, there's a lot of places that are interested in these polar vortex events here in North America, we're interested, but Europeans are definitely interested because it impacts a lot of different aspects of the whole continent, essentially.
0: Well, let's say uh, I, I was interested. At what kind of advice can you give to a student or someone who wants to pursue research or, you know, just know more about these polar vortexes?
1: Um, yeah, so I think really one of the, the key foundational parts of studying the polar vortex is learning about atmospheric dynamics. Um, there's a lot of relationships between temperature, between wind, between all of that. And once you understand the dynamical relationships and the fluid dynamics associated with how they work in the atmosphere, you can start to build the story that really tells you about how all of that feeds back into why you have a polar vortex. And really, that goes back to the the cold over the pole and then the wind around it. And it turns out that just like in the ocean we have waves, we have waves in the atmosphere. So understanding how the waves in the atmosphere are traveling, are these waves going to be sort of low-amplitude, shallow waves, or really deep waves, um, is something that we also have to understand. But if, if you want to learn about the polar vortex, you're going to have to take a little bit of math, a little bit of physics, and a little bit of uh, dynamics. But um, the one thing I will say is that when I was doing my undergrad degree when I was getting my bachelor's I had no idea the stratosphere and the polar vortex even existed it wasn't something that I learned about until I was in grad school so you know the fact that you're asking questions now as an undergrad or anybody is asking questions before they get to grad school about the polar vortex you have a leg up on me so yeah there's definitely plenty opportunity and lots of places to learn things so
0: yeah Thank you. Thank you for uh, the information shared today. Um, From any job in meteorology to what meteorology means to uh, even predicting how a beer company can save money on shipping their product. (laughs) That was our show today. Thank you so much for coming on to the Perpetual Notion Machine Show and teaching us about extreme weather.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It has been great.
0: That was Professor Andrea Lopez-Lang, an associate professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Environmental Sciences at University of Albany. She is here in residence at UW-Madison, teaching classes in atmospheric and environmental sciences, enlightening us on polar vortexes. And that does it for the show tonight, hopefully helping you all to know a little more about polar vortexes. Tune in to next week's show on the 29th to listen to Andrew Hahn, also next week, our Pledge Drive. Make sure to tune in and support. Stay tuned for Radio Literature with Melvin Hinton. Once again, thank you and have a good night.